Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my recidivist friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we fulfill a legal obligation to interview the unnecessarily ubiquitous Dr. Dan McNeish of Arizona State University about why you probably don't need to use multi-level modeling, even when you have multi-level data. Along the way, we also mention McNair, Safety Schools, The Green Monster, Driving a Corvette Across the Country, Anklet Shocks, Endogeneity, Frunks, Tom Brady's Middle Name, and Demeaning. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Madam Foreperson, have you reached a verdict? You're goddamn right we have. What find you with regard to the first charge? Namely that Quantitude intentionally and with malice both failed to appreciate and willfully chose not to discuss a thoughtful and insightful contribution to the future of teaching episode made by the plaintiff, Dr. Daniel McNeish, also known to the court as Knuckles. Oh, wicked guilty, Your Honor. Forthwith, in contrition for your willful ignoring Dr. McNeish's submitted audio comments on teaching, you shall dedicate an entire episode of your so-called podcast to personally interviewing him about any of what I'm sure are brilliant papers. In partial fulfillment of the court order handed down to Patrick James Curran and myself, Gregory Robert Hancock, we are very pleased today to welcome Dan McNeish as our guest on Quantitude. Welcome, Dan. We recognize you as a leader in the field, and we are honored that you are able to join us at this time. Greg, would you like to introduce our honored guest? <clears throat> I thought we agreed you would do that. Just do it. God. Okay. Um, Daniel McNair McNeish is associate professor in the... McNair? What the fuck kind of name? Okay, I'm sorry. Just get it done with, Greg. Just, I'm sorry. Go. Daniel McNair McNeish is associate professor in the quantitative area in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. Prior to joining Arizona State University, he held positions at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, as well as a research scientist position at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He has won some awards and stuff and does multi-level things. He is also known to some segments of society as Knuckles. In complete fulfillment of our court order, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. All right, thanks everybody for your time. We appreciate you listening in as usual. Patrick, there was a time stipulation. I actually, I know, I know. Okay, okay, throw it to me. Okay, take it away, Patrick. Uh, Knuckles, I think we could fill a lot of time if you gave us a little bit of your professional coming of age story. So give us, you know, 30 or 40 minutes maybe (laughs) on kind of where you're from. How did you get to where you are today? What makes you such an asshole? (laughs) (laughs) A litigious asshole. Well, that's a much longer story if you want me to go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I guess my origin story. So I, uh, just like everyone, had no idea. I didn't grow up and think, oh, I want to either be a fireman or a quantitative methodologist. Those are my two top priorities, and I got to narrow them down. <laughs> Originally, I was not really college material, so I started and uh, I went to a, a small college. This was when I was living in Michigan, 
And uh, I mostly went to classes at night and worked during the day. And I had to take a statistics class. And I found out that I really liked it. And so I talked to the professor after class. And she just said, you know, what are you doing? And I said, well, I, I kind of like psychology and I like this, but I'm not good at math. And so she said, uh, well, do you know what psychometrics is? Because that was her background. She was actually a quantitative methods hmm. person. And so I said, I have no idea what that is, like everybody else out there in the regular general population. <laughs> but I started reading about it. And then I actually transferred schools to a college in Connecticut where there was a psychometrician who was on the faculty there. And so I started working in his lab. And then from there, I have a pretty boring origin story that basically halfway through undergrad, I just said, I like this. I'm going to do it. I applied to a bunch of grad schools. I got rejected by many of them, including <laughs> UNC. I still have the rejection letter that you sent me. We're trying to build character. So you did a great job. You did a great job. <laughs> I remember I was trying to be so sneaky because I went to Maryland shortly thereafter. Safety school, apparently. Yes. <laughs> I was <laughs> I was trying to be cool and leverage, and I was like, uh, I have this offer from Maryland. I just wanted to know your guys' thoughts, and uh, I got a nice email back from uh, one of the people in the office that said, Ooh, you know, if you haven't got notice that you're interviewing, that means you didn't make the cut. And it's like... Okay, so good move trying to leverage the Maryland offer. That really worked out well. So That wasn't you. It was just Maryland. It's like, seriously? If they let you in, then we really are not interested in No you. part of it. No part of it. So I did go to Maryland. My uh, advisor was yours truly, Greg Hancock. Although I did work a lot with other people there, and that's how I got a little bit into multi-level stuff through work with Laura Stapleton. And then from there, as Greg said, I got my first job in the Netherlands, came back to work at UNC. They accepted you this time? Yes. So the previous <laughs> rejection was not an issue. We did not have to uh, reconcile that. We actually groveled to get him back. I remember groveling. I made promises to you, Knuckles, that I had no intention of keeping. <laughs> And so that was, I guess, partially a research scientist position, partially a postdoc. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm the singular person who is a advisee of one member of Quantitude for my PhD and a postdoc mentee of the other host of Quantitude. So not only do I listen, I also have lived the podcast for most of my academic <laughs> yeah. training. And on behalf of Quantitude, uh -huh. we apologize <laughs> yes. for that. <laughs> And lawsuits ensue, so you can see how that typically follows from there. So, uh, so then after UNC, I, uh, I got a tenure-track job at Arizona State. I'd never been west of the Mississippi River, so that was a hoot. I like that there's no snow and that people are nice and not like the embodiment of a cranberry in like uh, New England where I'm from. Um, and people like say hi. I remember when someone said, have a nice day at the store. And it was like, why should I? Why don't you make me? Like, I'll have whatever kind of day I want. Like, this is not, you don't have to. You're not the boss of me. You are not in charge. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so then I've been here since uh, 2017. Now I can't go back. I went back and it was cold and I was like, no, I'm not doing that anymore. And so pretty much settled in and just doing quant stuff. When you're not doing quant stuff, is there one fun non-academic thing that you do outside of your day job? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know me. You don't know. Like, why, why would you ask? That? <laughs> what about your car? The only <laughs> impact I had on your entire professional trajectory is that you were going to ship your car to Phoenix yeah. and fly. And I told you to drive. 
Uh, that was a great decision. <laughs> when I look at your career trajectory and your CV, that was my most significant <laughs> contribution to your development was, oh, for the love of God, you've got to drive a Corvette across the country. Yeah, I hit a speed record, though, so I don't know if I should admit that publicly. (laughs) So, Patrick did mentor you well, then. (laughs) All right, if you two are done with Compensation Club, can we continue? (laughs) What was that? Dan doesn't know this, but we have a new feature on only this episode of Quantitude, and that is Fun Boston and Massachusetts Trivia. Oh, great. All right. (laughs) Are you ready? So you left out of your trajectory that you are born and bred Bostonian. Well, it depends on how granular you want to get, because I know everyone thinks that. I'm from a little bit further west in Massachusetts. So are you in the 24-letter alphabet or the 23-letter yeah. alphabet? Where, like, give or take? Yeah, we still haven't ratified the letter R, so we don't really need that. All right, so 25 letters, give or take. All right, go for it, Greg. I like this new feature. All right. Uh, let's see. Should we start easy? How tall is the green monster? God, I don't... (laughs) Uh, is it 58 feet? Wow, this is going to be a long episode, Patrick. (laughs) I don't know. How how tall is it, please? It is 37 feet, 2 inches. 37 feet, okay. So for those of you who don't know, especially our international audience, the green monster is the wall in the back left field of Fenway Park, where the Boston Red Sox play. And in order to hit a home run over left field, you got to get it up over a wall that is not 58 feet high. 37. 37 feet, two inches. All right. So Patrick, do you want to tell Dan what sparked us, other than the court order, what sparked us to invite him to join us today? It stemmed from a gag that you did, Greg, during the holiday episode. I don't know if you remember, because many of these came organically and were vented in a very highly emotionally (laughs) charged setting. You came uncorked about the need for multi-level models or their lack of, and I took some minor exception to that. To remind listeners, here was Greg's views on this topic. All right. Hmm. A need for multi-level models. Uh, well, that's funny because there usually isn't. (laughs) We teach entire courses in multi-level model. When people say, oh, I've got to do an HLM. You know what? You probably don't. Most of the people out there who say, oh, I need a multi-level model. I have to do a multi. You almost never do. You know why? Because you don't have a question that is at multiple levels. Just because you have a data structure that has a second level or even a third level, if your research questions are just at the first level, then f***ing deal with it. There are model-based approaches. There are design-based approaches. Just deal with the dumpster fire of your data. Go ahead and figure out how to handle this with a design-based approach. Adjust your standard errors. We don't need you trying to model some giant Jenga tower. All we need you to do is to make some damn corrections. I don't need everybody to do multi-level this, multi-level that. You almost never need multi-level jack. I teach multi-level modeling. (laughs) That's a good use of your time. (laughs) I have to say, Dan, you are sort of responsible for that rant. Because you had a paper with Laura Stapleton and Rebecca Silverman that came out in Psych Methods. The title, I love this title, I love many of your titles, On the Unnecessary Ubiquity of Hierarchical Linear Modeling. 
that's like giving the finger, right? And saying, oh, you want a piece of me? You want a piece of me? (laughs) I love that. And that sort of fueled some of my rant at that time. And what we were hoping to do, court order notwithstanding, does your anklet keep buzzing, Patrick? Mine keeps giving me little micro shocks. Do you get that from time to time? I've come to enjoy them. (laughs) (laughs) So two things. One is for somebody out looking for it. It's 2017. Yes, thank you. And second, I am most impressed that you were able to spell the word unnecessary correctly, because I got to tell you, I just start throwing in N's and C's and S's until it's not underlined red anymore. (laughs) So you get an attaboy. After that, I'm not so sure I agree with you. So I'm on board up to the third word of the title. (laughs) Great. So, Patrick, before you unleash the fury, maybe we could have Dan summarize a bit about how he came to that particular position and then actually go through some of the alternatives. So can you sort of walk us through some of that? Oh, that'll fill a ton of time. So, yeah, please, Dan. (laughs) Sure. So just like most people who are in a, a quantitative field who do stuff in like psych or education, there's normally a course called multi-level modeling, but really I think what it should be called is clustered data. So right when you walk in the door, you think that multi-level modeling is the thing that you use to address this type of question when you have some independence assumption violation. So, you know, a lot of the standard models that you learn in beginning classes focus on that one of the assumptions is that the observations are independent. So if any two people in your data don't have any relation between each other, but of course in the fields we tend to work in, that's not true. So if you do any data collection in schools, any two kids that are in the same class, you're not getting completely unique information from each kid. They're, you're getting some dependency between things that they share the same teacher, they go to the same school, they probably live in the same neighborhood. So the more people you get, you're not getting perfectly unique information. So there's some overlap between the information that each person is providing you. And so you violate that assumption, you have to do something with it. And so the knee-jerk reaction in psychology and education in these types of fields is multi-level models. And that's usually the, uh, the story that you get is, I'm using a multi-level model because I'm accounting for clustering. And I think that that's kind of the, the go-to soundbite to try to convince someone why you need to use this. But I don't necessarily think that is the right answer. It seems like that's the byproduct of using a multi-level model, but it's not the focus. And so I was fortunate enough to have Laura Stapleton teach the multi-level class when I was at Maryland, because her background is in economics. And so if you ask an economist about random effects models for clustered data, they'll look at you like you just murdered somebody and say, why would you ever use random effects? Because there's all these assumptions you have to make. Have you ever heard of endogeneity? Like, come on. And if you ask a person in psychology what endogeneity means, they'll probably stare at you and go, what are you you talking about? Like, I'm not sick. You know, I don't have endogeneity. Um, I did once in college. It went away quick with antibiotics. Uh Uh-huh. So I I think that we get taught that multi-level models are the way to deal with this, but we don't ever get exposed in education or psychology to a host of other methods. And I know in Greg's coverage of that topic in the previous podcast episode, we said there's all these corrections that other fields use. If you've ever worked in Stata before, you notice that there's these options to cluster errors for basically any procedure. And to some fields, that's how you deal with clustered data is you don't try to model it explicitly with a multi-level model and say, you know, what does the model at the first level look like? And how does the second level look? Mm -hmm. If I split the levels apart, then I got to assume that things don't correlate across the levels. 
uh, particularly the error terms at each level are unrelated, and that I include all the relevant variables at each level. Now I have multiple assumptions at multiple levels about you know, the random effects can't be correlated with the outcome. They can't be correlated with the predictors at the same levels or at different levels. They just say, I don't really care. I just want to know what the regression slope is. And when I get the p-value, I want to make sure it's right. Mm -hmm. And so the standard errors are just a function of how you chop up the variance. And there's formulas that work for that. And in education and psych, I think we oftentimes try to use multi-level models. It's basically the most complicated way possible to chop <laughs> up that variance into the right pieces. And the analogy that I've used before is that multi-level models are big and they're powerful. They're kind of like a Ferrari, but you're not going to take a Ferrari to the grocery store. They can do a lot of things, but if you have a simple task, they become very difficult to work with in some cases. And if you try to put groceries in the trunk or the frunk, if you have a rear engine Ferrari, <laughs> it's hard to fit them in. Like You can only get two things, and if you hit a pothole, it's going to cost you $10,000 to fix the rim on the car. And I think multi-level models are similar that if you have a research question about, I want to know why certain coefficients vary over particular groups, that is fantastic. And you should absolutely use multi-level models and pay the taxes for the assumptions that you have to make. I don't think a lot of people are using them to address those questions. I know in the paper you referenced, there's a, a short review of what people report, and it's something like half the studies don't even report those variances of those coefficients. Mm -hmm. So it makes me think if people aren't even reporting the whole essence of the model, that you're jumping through all these hoops to get these coefficients that are randomly varying to say, how does X affect Y in school one or in school two? Is there a lot of variance around that? And then you make these assumptions to get that information and then cut it out of the table completely completely and just saying, on average, you know, when X goes up by one, Y goes up by six, and now the P value is right. It's kind of the m most arduous way possible to get that answer. And you make assumptions along the way that I don't think you need. And so to make a short story long, it's just that I think there's these disciplinary preferences that because of books like Roudenbush and Bright, they make things really accessible and people latch on to methods in particular fields. And it's not their fault that they wrote a great book. But then 20 years later, that's the only thing we use. And we don't really realize that economists are operating and using this other thing. There's you know fixed effects models, which is a whole nother thing. And there's another paper I wrote in 2019 that is basically the same as the one you mentioned, but instead of comparing comparing clustered errors to multi-level models, it's fixed effects to multi-level models and say, there's other ways. How do those things compare to each other? Who uses these things? And there's all sorts of ways that you can account for clustering and we kind of have our blinders on. I know that sometimes that paper gets me flack for saying never use multi-level models. And I don't want that to be the take-home message. It's just, why are you using this? If it's just because you want to account for clustering, that's not what a multi-level model is for. It's to model heterogeneity in your coefficients across some group or clustering variable. If you just want to account for the clustering in your standard errors to get correct p-values, you can correct that out. You can use fixed effects to just explain away the clustering entirely. There's other things you can do that are usually kind of the easy button. To go back to your topic on previous episodes of teaching and how we teach quantitative methods, I think it gets people off on the wrong foot when they walk into a class and they see, I have clustered data, I need to use this complicated thing, and what's a random effect, and you know, what's the difference at different levels, when we could just be telling people, the easiest thing you can do is just correct it out. And it's not perfect, but it gets you 95% of the way there for a lot of the questions that you might want to ask.
And you know, you don't need multi-level structural equation models. You fit the model you want and then correct the errors out if you need to. Mm -hmm. If you have a more complicated question, then we can move into that. But treating it as the default seems like it makes things look more complicated than they need to be. In uh, fairness to you, which I'm actually disinclined to offer, <laughs> but in fairness to you, I don't think your message in the paper was that you don't need to ever use multi-level models. It's just that under so many circumstances, it's overkill, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I think the title, I made it stupid so people would read it. It's more of a marketing mm -hmm. <laughs> technique. And also, I learned all those words for the GRE, and I'm going to use them, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> So there's other papers that say this, but the, the title is always a little bit obscure, I think, to people who don't know the differences. Let me just be a little in your face. And in your face and demanding people's attention is sort of the way your people are. Isn't that correct? So that's exactly correct. You are right. <laughs> oh, hey. What a perfect timing. You got one? You know, I printed them and they're over in the printer, but my feet are up and it seems really like a lot of effort. So why don't you do one? Okay. In what town does the Boston Marathon begin? I have no, I have no idea. Say Boston. Boston? Like, I guess, you know, Cambridge? One of um, those ones around there? It starts in Hopkinton. Okay. <laughs> right. Oh, for two. Like, that's fun. Wow. I, I want to go back, if I may, to two things that you said. One is frunk. <laughs> I've never said frunk before. The other is the point that you made or sort of snuck in there is that multi-level models are often not just overkill, but they introduce assumptions that, in fact, you likely don't meet. And so in the spirit of trying to correct for some of the problems you have, it sounds to me like they might actually introduce new problems. I think that's exactly right. And I know at least in organizational research or business research where kind of econometrics and psychometrics collide, you know, there's a recent paper by John Antonakis that says endogeneity is a big assumption that at least economists hit on. I think it's the biggest dichotomy when using these models that economists are fearful of and psychologists don't even really acknowledge or you, know, you can't even find papers in psychology journals on endogeneity from a methods perspective. And I know that he did a review of all the literature on how people use this and most people don't check it. And his conclusion was, you know, if you get endogeneity wrong, first of all, it changes the coefficients. It screws up how you estimate them. Causal inferences go out the window completely. And you lose the consistency of your estimates. So as sample size goes up and up and up, you don't actually get the right answer on average. And this is something that I don't think anybody checks. I don't think anyone really understands. I don't think we teach it. I tried to teach it in when I taught a multi-level class and everyone just kind of goes, what? Because it's a hard idea, I think, to hit on. Well, do. Give us your two minutes on indigeneity and how to assess it. If not, we'll ask you another Boston question. So... It's really your sure. choice. Oh, God, please don't do that. I'm getting exposed as a fraud. May you be better at endogeneity. Yeah, fill in the blank. Blank baked beans. <laughs> Framingham? Damn it! <laughs> yes, that's right. God. Okay, now you've got 120 seconds on endogeneity. Go. Okay, so it's basically an omitted confounders problem of you need to make sure that the correlation between your random effects and your predictors or the random effects in your outcome, depending on how you want to define it, is zero. And you mostly blow that if you don't include all of the relevant covariates at the second level in the model. I think there's this misconception that 
if I include random intercepts, then I'm accounting for clustering and all the reasons are explained. And that always drives me crazy because the random intercept variance is just saying it's a residual, but now it's a residual somewhere else. I'm just chopping it into pieces. You're not explaining that variance at all. So you don't meet that assumption to say if you left variables out, that random intercept doesn't save you. You still have to include all of the relevant predictors or else you're going to have some relation between errors or random effects and the variables that are in your model. And when that happens, the estimation is no longer consistent. Things are not calculated correctly. Standard errors can be off. Your p-values can be off. The estimates that you get can all be off. How you check it, this is, I think, why it's a little bit of something that people kind of skip over, is it's kind of like missing data, that if you had the variable, you would look at it. If you didn't collect a variable in your data that matters, you can't assess whether that thing is correlated with the errors that you have in the model. So it's kind of one of these phantom assumptions that you have to meet, but at the same time, you're kind of difficult to test. And so this is why I think economists are fearful of this because they kind of assume that they don't have every single variable that could matter to get this correlation to be down to zero, where in psych we're just like, ah, oh, whatever, it's fine. And, you know, maybe that's okay. I don't know which one is right, but that's where this dichotomy kind of splits that one group says, I definitely don't have this. And the other one says, I can't test it. So I'm not test it very easily at least. So I'm just going to kind of wing it and hope that it's fine. What do you think, Patrick? How was that? I think that filled two fortieths of our <laughs> mandated time. So I really like that answer. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, I was being 90% facetious in teasing you about the title of the paper and my agreement with it. There's nothing you've said that I disagree with, not a single thing. Bauer and I wrote a paper a dozen years ago that proposed a path diagramming approach to multi-level models that exactly no one in the world uses. I have cited that multiple times just to... <laughs> so outstanding. So you are 100% of the citations. So I appreciate that. But Dan and I thought, hey, we got a great idea. We'll take this diagramming framework and we will apply it to previously published papers to show how you could present all your fixing your random effects in one setting. We could barely find any papers that presented the random effects in the way that you're describing. There would be fixed effects, there would be usual things, but I can echo your own challenge in trying to find that as the vast majority don't. Now, I teach multi-level. I taught it for years, and we can get into this later if we want, is in many situations, I'll continue to defend that, just as you are. If you have a multi-level question, use a multi-level model. But even I, in lecture, will start downplaying the random effects when you start building your level one and level two models, because those become disturbances. And in unconditional models, if you're building an interclass correlation or in a growth model where you want a random effect on an intercept and a slope, we can wax poetic about class-to-class -class variability. But as soon as you start bringing predictors in, nobody cares, right? Because they start becoming disturbances and you focus entirely on the fixed effects. So I completely agree with that is the things that we most brag about often we don't even table in a paper 
Yeah, reminds me of a quote Bob Kudek said of how everyone loves to sing the praises that the model is cluster-specific, but everyone just resorts to mean profile analysis in the end. So what's the point of going through all the hoops of, oh, look, I caught up the variability, and now I have variance components here, and then the average effect is one. And it's like, okay, great. Why did you jump through all those hoops to get me back to a single number when you could have just corrected everything out to say, here's the single number and the p-value is now right, and walked away. So maybe also you could expand a little because we could easily get five or ten minutes more out of this. And your paper is a work of beauty. I really, really like of going through in a very balanced way, very clear way, comparing, contrasting, and laying out the why. I like how you have the equations and you're showing what's happening. So we've got in a standard two-group clustering and you get cluster corrected standard errors or sandwich estimators or Huber White. I mean, there are a whole variety of these. Talk a little bit, though, because I was intrigued about moving then to the repeated measures in GEE, because I find GEE really cool. It's got this garage band element to it of this level one working matrix that if you were left on a desert island and you had to build a level one residual <laughs> matrix, this is kind of how you go about doing it. So tell us a little bit about how do you then generalize this to a repeated measure setting? And tell us what GEE stands for, for God's sake. Thanks, Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> good, good teaching there. So why don't you tell us about GEE a little bit on the way here? So GEE stands for Generalized Estimating Equation. So sometimes it's referred to as a model, but really it's an estimation technique. So we mentioned clustered errors or all the thing, all the different names or different varieties that you just mentioned, um, Huber White or uh, Sandwich Estimators. The, uh, the other way to go about when you have dependent data is to model the dependence directly. Ordinary least squares will simplify things by assuming that your observations are independent. You can use something like generalized least squares, though, where you say, I have some other structure here that captures how my observations are dependent. And that's more of the route that generalized estimating equations will go, as it says, I don't necessarily have to correct this uh, initially, but I need you to tell me how your repeated measures are correlated. I imagine that if you're getting the same data from the same person over and over, that their time one response is related to time two, time two is related to time three, and so on. And so those are not independent, but you need to tell me how they're dependent. The neat thing about GEE is that unlike generalized least squares, you don't have to be right about what that structure looks like. So you have, as you mentioned, you have this thing called a working structure, which is give me a guess about what your structure looks like. Is it autoregressive that time one and time four are less related than time one and time two? Is it exchangeable that basically everything is correlated to the same degree? You pick a structure to start the GEE process, and then what it does is it uses your data as it goes through. So it will say, let's pretend that the thing you gave me, the working structure, is right. I'm going to estimate your coefficients, and then I'm going to get some errors, and I'll look at those errors, and I'll see what's left. You know, Is there still relation beyond what you told me? And I'm going to use that error to go back and update the matrix that you gave me. That's this iterative process where you go through and say, update what the covariance is now, re-estimate things. Does this look like it's right? If not, go back and change things. And as you go through, at the end, typically, asymptotically, you get the right answer, even if you get the matrix wrong in the beginning. So it's a way to kind of say, I have dependence, I don't really know what it is, but help me figure out what the right answer is. 
And then that way I don't have to use random effects. I don't have to make those assumptions. I just get what the relation between the repeated measures then is. And I use that to correct the standard errors and the p-values to make sure everything is right. But you got to pay the reaper. Right. I love everything you just said in this working matrix. Again, it's like a DIY kind of thing. When you really work through it, it's something you could almost do by hand in calculating. I love that. But that moves you into the population average subject specific kind of inferences. So fill some court ordered time by telling <laughs> right. us about that. <laughs> Right. And so the, the other thing, the difference between what are called marginal approaches or population average and random effect or also uh, subject specific is that the interpretation can sometimes change depending on if random effects are in the model or not. It gets into a little bit of a complication about if you can integrate random effects out of the likelihood or not. I don't think I want to dive into that. The basic gist, though, is that if you have linear models, it doesn't really matter. You get the same answer. So if your outcome is continuous, the population average and the subject-specific curves will look the same. When you have dichotomous outcomes or count outcomes, or if you're using a non-linear model, like an exponential function or logistic Michaelis-Menten, depending on the estimation method that you use, you actually get different results because one is trying to get the average across all people and one is conditioning on saying, what's the typical person look like at this value of the random effect? I have a whole section on this that Bauer and I teach and we get way into the weeds and then pop up on the other side and say nine times out of 10, you write the same discussion section. Yet another super good use of our time. <laughs> But it is a method that I think is neglected. And I think that is kind of circling back to your paper is I think one of the themes that I really resonate to is not that these methods should replace multi-level modeling, but these methods should be taught and considered as alternatives. And we don't teach them. Absolutely. No, if you, I mean, I, I, if you teach GEE, I, I mean, I teach it in my class because I, I think it's cool, but it's not widely accepted. If you try to publish with it, people go, what, what is this? I don't understand. Couldn't you just use a multi-level model? You didn't account for clustering. I did. I did. I did it a different way. <laughs> I explained it in a whole paragraph. It's just kind of ingrained in reviewers' minds. And I think for empirical researchers, you know, you empathize a lot and say, why would you not use a multi-level model if reviewer two is going to slam you if you use something else that's fancy and say, well, our field really uses this. So I think we got to stick with what's been established and go, well, how did that get established? Like I just, you know, the further back you go, you never really get a satisfying answer. And, you know, when you go up the hierarchy into more complicated stuff, I think you see the problem really directly. I know in like mixture models, if you're going to talk about repeated measures data, that we fit growth mixture models. And if you go into M plus or whatever software you're using, you fit the random effects version of that. And the random effects kill you in those models because you never need them. I've never seen a paper that says, you know, here's the subject specific curves in a growth mixture model. Really, you want to know, you know, what's class one's growth curve look like? What's class two's growth curve look like? That's a marginal problem. And then people are shocked when they find out that, you know, there's all these assumptions that go into these models and that they never converge. It's like, because you're trying to estimate so much latent stuff. You have four repeated measures and you want latent person-specific curves and you're trying to fit latent classes on top of that. Like, how much latent stuff do you think you can get out? <laughs> and you can fit marginal or population average versions of these things. And they converge far more easily and they're right more often because people have population average questions and they're trying to fit these subject-specific things to them. And it's nearly impossible unless you have 10,000 
thousand people, but no one has that. They have 200 people and you can use these simpler models to estimate and it makes your life a lot easier and you don't have to convert to the, I believe you called it the whack-a-mole game of what can I constrain to get this thing to be right and mm-hmm. fitting a, a model that says there's different latent classes of people, but they all vary exactly the same because the M plus gods told me that that's how I get my model to converge. I think it's not just a, hey, there's these other neat things, but when you start to build into more complicated stuff, the building blocks of everything is random effects based really starts to be a house of cards and falls under its own weight when you try to extend it into other areas that are not just, I have kids in schools and want to account for that. Yeah, it probably doesn't make a difference in most cases, you know, endogeneity aside, that you probably get the same answers if you do a now, that's in the paper. You get the clustered error answer. You get the multi-level answer. It's about the same. But when you move up and say, now let's add some latent classes to that, and then the random effects version falls apart real quick. I have a grant with Jeff Herring, um, also at Maryland. And we find that even if you fit the right model to growth mixture stuff with a random effects model, it doesn't converge unless you have thousands and thousands of people. Mm-hmm. That even if you're right about everything, it doesn't work. And we fit marginal models to stuff and say, what if I get the, you know, the working structure completely wrong? And what if I get other aspects of the model wrong? And it converges and gives you the right answer, you know, or right-ish uh, a fair amount of the time. And it's just, why are we trying so hard to stick to this random effects paradigm when you could say, you know, there's other things that can make your life easier. It's not always this, you know, well, whatever, it's the same anyway, and reviewer two won't hassle me for this. So yes, there's a case for both, but why don't we give people, you know, when we teach them and say, hey, here's two things. Here's an easy, the easy way if you like this. Here's if you want to build things up more complicated and ask multi-level questions. There's also ways to do that. Is there a really easy one on there? <laughs> this one, I can't imagine him getting this wrong. Here we go. What is Tom Brady's middle name? <laughs> I know his birthday. I don't know his name. Um <laughs> And his home address. <laughs> August 3rd, 1977. Uh, Thomas, or is it... Uh, oh my God, I don't even... Is it, it's I don't, probably not McNair. I'll no, tell you yeah, that. Why don't you go on about that a little bit more? Like, we didn't touch that enough. Jeez. Uh, wow. No, I don't even have a get Robert. All right. <laughs> he has two middle names. His name is Thomas Edward Patrick Brady. Okay. Junior. Junior. All right. All right. I've got a question for him. Okay. Go. What rhymes with Mostyn? Uh, Austin. Yes, you got it. Okay. <laughs> sure. Sure. Okay. I have a question, a substantive question here. Okay, good. Thank God. That's, that's... <laughs> so you teach a multi-level course right now. Is that correct? Not this semester, but in the like in the fall. I'm yes. So. Okay. All right. So what I would like to know is what is your curriculum in that particular class? It is called multi-level modeling yeah. or multi-level methods. It's not called cluster data. What have you laid out for the curriculum for that class? So yeah, the name of the course is multi-level models and psychological research, and it's a pain to change the course name. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, that's what it is. So I start just with, so the first day is a review of regression, and I don't even talk about random effects or multi-level models until about a month in. Mm -hmm. And it's all of, if you have clustered data, it's about why clustering is a problem, why ordinary least squares, and like that estimation method, and also 
the general linear model in general that we usually apply that to. Why is clustering a problem? I try to make sure that that is clear, not to say clustering's a problem, here's how you deal with it. It's mm-hmm. why is this a problem and what happens when it's violated? When you don't model any dependence, all the variance of things gets all screwed up mm-hmm. because you're attributing more information to the data than you have. Your standard errors are going to be bad. If your standard errors are bad, then your p-values are bad and that whole chain of things. And so then that's when I enter uh, cluster robust methods and sort of corrections to say, hey, we can do regression models with these things. We can do basically any model you can fit in M plus can apply these corrections to it as well. Also talk about like the more hacky versions of like from the 50s and 60s about DEFT corrections. Figure out what the ICC is and then just multiply your standard errors by that number. Mm-hmm. And that comes out of that formula to say, here's the estimate for how much bigger the standard errors need to be. To really try to hone in on the fact that if you have dependent data and you don't have multi-level questions, the thing you need to zoom in on is, how do I get the standard errors to be right? Because that's where the issue is. It's all about inference that if you want the p-values to be right, you got to make sure the standard errors are right. And so to try to nail that idea that multi-level models does not mean accounting for clustering. Multi-level models means taking advantage of this data structure. It's not a nuisance. It's not a problem that's preventing me from getting right p-values. It's something that I can ask questions about and use to my advantage. It's to say, oh, great, I have clustered data. Now I can ask questions about how the context influences how people respond or what are the individual differences in a growth model. And to use that model to really build questions and take advantage of things that a regular you know, non-clustered data set really doesn't have access to. So that's what your decision tree looks like, right? If you just want corrected p-values at level one for testing some things, then impose some sort of corrections, not hacky ones from the 50s, of course, but more more modern kinds of corrections. But if you have contextual questions, if you have questions about what's going on at level two, how level two stuff relates to level one stuff, or maybe level two questions altogether, then you make that right turn and you head over into multi-level land. Is that right? I think so. I think that's a a much more articulate summary. All right. So then you spend about three days on multi-level models in your class? (laughs) (laughs) Partially, yeah. I mean, it's a... a A lot of it is not the actual model itself. It's about what are the random effects and what are you trying to do with them? And I think that's the yeah. uh, the multi-level class comes before SEM at ASU. And so hmm. a lot of people don't have latent variables and random effects, don't have that vernacular already. So a lot of it is just building that up of what is a cluster-specific slope? Like, what does that mean? Like, I can't see mm-hmm. that. My data, it's not a column in my data set that says, oh, school 14 has a slope of 12. Like, great, I'll just put that into the model. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're trying to use the data to get that latent piece of information to see. School 12 has a slope. I don't know what it is, and it's different from all the schools together. So let me see if I can figure out what that is. And then just to try to hit the point home that multi-level is kind of an adjective of other models. And I think that that's what makes I always think multi-level a little bit weird to teach is anything becomes multi-level when your question is up a different uh, level of the hierarchy about now I have these things that are interacting across levels and what the school context affects the students and the disaggregating predictors into saying what's a trait and what's a state. I know that Curran and Bauer have that magical paper about, you know, you really have to disaggregate things. 
And how that becomes a lot more prevalent in these intensive longitudinal models that are coming up. Really matters, you know, what state and what part is trait, and I need to split that apart. And to try to, to talk a lot about centering, that centering doesn't just change the interpretation of the intercept. It's also a, a useful way to get information about those different levels and about what happens if I factor out the context to a degree when I cluster mean center which is also a useful device for getting at that endogeneity problem that I ranted about a little bit ago that people use in political science, for instance, where they say you have to cluster mean center. Otherwise, the endogeneity will ruin your life. And it's not just a choice of what does the intercept mean if I do this or how do I get you know between verse within effects there? I love that you put that on the front end of your MLM class because we have material on that. When I say we, Dan and I do this joint teaching. So we have the material... But completely honestly, ours is a handful of slides. We talk about Huber White, Sandwich, Cluster Corrected, and then we talk about fixed effect approaches, which you alluded to in that you have a companion paper with this, that is kind of, I view it as a blunt force instrument where you just remove group to group differences and you're left with the within level effects and a properly specified model. I actually like fixed effect models a lot, but we go right to the assumption that you do have a multi-level question, that you have meaningful predictors at level two. I spend a lot of time thinking about disaggregation of within and between group effects and within and between person effects. But you know what we do? We have an entire chapter of our notes dedicated to diagnostics. And we have had a futile two-man effort to try to get the field to use good old school, almost Gauss-Markov OLS regression diagnostics to empirically evaluate some of the assumptions that you talk about in the paper. So you can get estimates of level one residuals. You can get estimates of level two random effects. You can take those and plot them and look for trends in residual plots. And you can look at individual contributions to likelihood and outliers and all of these things. So our response to the very things that you've been raising is don't wave your hand and say, yeah, it's fine. I'm sure the assumptions are fine. We have a lot of strategies that we can, to varying degrees, empirically evaluate the extent to which our model meets the assumptions that I kind of think of Gauss-Markov on steroids. Whatever's good within one level, you put it at another level and you put them across levels. And those are pretty much the assumptions of the MLM as you describe in your paper. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, it's a trend in general that when we make models more complicated, we lose track of the foundations and principles of stuff that we preach in all the other classes. That it seems like you know, the more complicated a model gets, the, the less we talk about measurement and psychometrics. We go, if I fit this complicated network model, but I'll just do it to some scores and then it'll be fine. You know, we have all these factor analytic models and IRT and we you know, slam people when they just use some scores and regression models sometimes. But if you make the model fancy enough that all the underlying stuff has to go away to make it you know, accommodating or I don't have space to talk about stuff that's foundational. And I think the assumptions in multi-level models are a prime example of that. If you say... Well, you're making all these assumptions, but the model's already so hard. So let me just worry about the interpretation. And I don't actually worry if it's appropriate or if it's right or if my estimates are actually meaningful. Or you, know, you don't usually get away with that as easily if you do ANOVA. 
on like a binary variable, you wouldn't go, well, that's fine. I don't need to check if the residuals are all right. And your reviewer two is going to slam you. But if you show them some complicated multi-level thing and you have a three-point Likert scale, it's going to be like, well, it's probably fine because the model's already complicated. Well, and to clarify, Roudenbush and Breich wrote about these diagnostics in the first edition of their book. They have a really cool example where you get empirical Bayes estimates of level two random effects do residual plots like you do in first year grad stat regression. Look at the, you know, the residual plots for trends and there's a curvature. And when you bring in a cross-level interaction that's been omitted, it actually accounts for the curvature. I mean, it is like old school residual diagnostics just applied to the multi-level model. But I can't even remember the last application I've seen published that anybody has even commented on doing diagnostics to examine meeting assumptions in the MLM. Yeah, I know that the, there's the Diedrich paper. It's a 2009 review of Ed Research that he, he goes through and he reviews a bunch of papers about you know what they report. And I think it's like 1% talk about some of these assumptions or sometimes it's zero and it's just like... Well, if you ever read this literature, of course, you never see anyone do that. Or you know, maybe the rise in open science and supplemental materials would be like, well, maybe people will post that so we can see it. Maybe that'll be a little bit better. I just reviewed an update of that paper, and it seemed like nothing has changed. So the Diedrich paper did like 2000 to 2009 or something like that. And they took it from where he left off to current. And it seems like you know nothing's really changing, that we can just keep yelling at people to do this. And it doesn't seem to be impacting practice very much. So I have a wrap-up kind of question. With all of the things that we've talked about in your experiences both in research and teaching, how does this affect how you plan a study? When you are going into a study, working maybe with a team? When you say planning, is it more about if you don't have any data and you're going to collect it, or is it more that someone comes to you with this data already and you, know, you need to help guide them through what you think the proper way to analyze it is? We're big advocates, actually, of not trying to do repair work on the back end, even though that seems to be like 80 to 90 percent of our job. But rather, if someone comes to you and says, I want to plan a study and I need you to help me lay these kinds of things out, things to think about, things to do, what kind of guidance would you give them? Yeah, first, from a more pragmatic standpoint, power analyses and multi-level models are horrible if you ever try to do it. And single-level models with corrections are easier to work with, I think. So if someone wants to get a better idea of how many of these people or how many things do I need to collect, it's a little bit easier to do that. If you ever try to do a multi-level simulation, there's way more guesswork involved to try to get things right. It's usually Monte Carlo-based. Mm-hmm. There's some software that can help you, but it's a little bit limited in the kinds of things that can help you with. And some things just have to go outside and just kind of custom program it. So at least from my own time-saving perspective and the self-preservation of saying, uh, do you really need a multi-level model here? Because I don't want to do that power analysis unless I have to. <laughs> I think also in terms of planning that it can make people's lives a little bit easier that, you know, usually a question you get is, I care about R squared or I care about effect sizes. And if you're in a multi-level framework, effect size is, depending on how you chop up the variance, if you're trying to define Cohen's D in a multi-level model or R squared in a multi-level model, you usually get six or seven different options that you have to pick from. There's not a single one. Mm-hmm. In regular models with corrections, it's a little more clear. In terms of planning, though, like I think a lot of times the clustered data is something that people are not able to avoid. When you're collecting the data, they kind of are what they are. You have kids in schools, great. If you have people in hospitals, that's great. 
I don't think that necessarily, it might affect what variables you want to collect. If you're going to go into the multi-level frame and say, I, I care about contextual things, then you better get contextual information. So getting those research questions aligned at the beginning is probably the guiding principle. If you're going to use multi-level questions or multi-level models, make sure you collect the stuff you need on the back end to make sure that you can address those questions. You can fend off things about endogeneity. Did you include all the variables at that level? that would make the errors and the predictors unrelated to each other. What if someone says, I only have access to X number of level two units? How does that inform your choice either to tell them to give up on it or not? Yeah, and so this is a big problem in an area that I usually work in. Is That's why my answer to the planning was so horrible, because I'm usually <laughs> not involved then. I come in on the back end and say, oh, I have 12 clusters. Big sample size is hard to get at that higher level. Mm -hmm. If you have 12 schools worth of kids, that might be 1,000 kids, but they're only in 12 schools. It's hard to make that higher sample size big enough. I don't think giving up is necessarily the best choice, at least for me. That's usually what I have to fix. So the problem with small number of clusters is that usually the standard errors are problematic. The estimation starts to get a little bit off. It'd be like trying to do a regression with eight people. And it's like, well, do you really trust what you're getting out of that? Probably not. But there are some ways to try to minimize the damage that that small sample size can do. The go-to, if you know it's so small that you can't really do anything, is the fixed effects model that we've kind of hit on before, mm -hmm. where you get a dummy variable for each cluster, and then you add those in as predictors in the model. And one of the nice features of this is it basically explains away a whole level of your data structure. So if I have four schools and say, what do I do with this school level thing? I didn't collect any variables at the school level because I don't have any questions, but I still want to use this data, but I'm worried about those four schools. If you kind of fixed effect away the school level and say, all right, there's a dummy variable for school one, dummy variable for school two, and a dummy variable for school three, I'm going to add them in. That will account for all the possible school level stuff, even if you didn't collect it. It's almost like a magic button to say, let me just be a black hole that absorbs all the school level stuff. And now I can just worry about the students. The standard errors will be right. I can ask any relation about how do student level variables affect the outcome. But that cluster level stuff, I can treat it, you know, if it is that nuisance that I just want to deal with, the clustered errors won't save you if you have a small sample size. They're based on asymptotics. You need big enough sample sizes to get those things to work. So the fixed effect model is kind of your last resort. It's useful for other things, but it can be a last resort to say, don't throw that away. Just factor out the stuff that you can't deal with and model the relations about the lower level things that you probably do have enough of. That four schools might give you 100 people and you can fit a model with 100 people. I can trust that. So let me factor out a level in that way. And this often comes up when you have a sample that is maybe a three-level example. I really care about kids in schools, but I also have a couple districts. How do I deal with that? You know, I only have four districts. Do I fit a three-level model and say, no, don't do that? Just wipe the district level away and all the district level stuff, just explain it or account for it, but then move on to the questions at the levels that you do care about. One of the beauties is you're left with a pure estimate of within group. Mm -hmm. So you get an unbiased estimate within group with an appropriate standard error. And I completely agree with you when you have nuisance three, four grouping that you couldn't estimate a level two even if you wanted to. 
But that fixed effect approach even works if you have 20 or 30 groups. Right. If you have 30 groups put in 29 dummy codes and you get a pure estimate of the within-group effect with a proper standard error, and it is almost magic. It's very cool. And from the multi-level perspective, it also removes that endogeneity assumption because you have all the variables at level two. You don't have to worry about, did I get them all in? It's like, I explained 100% of the level two variance. It's gone. Anything that's left over is just the within-variance only. And so you can do this with dummy variables. You can do this with centering also. There's a way to get at this. Mm. Um, usually called demeaning, often hyphenated to make sure that you're not... You know, <laughs> I'm demeaning my model. You're a horrible model. Like, do better. <laughs> get a higher R squared. Um, but there's... And I know that Ellen Homaker and Bengt Muten have a paper that say the... There's these arguments in economics and related you know, adjacent areas about, do I use fixed effects or random effects? And they say, that's really a centering approach that... By putting those dummy variables in, you're kind of centering in a way Mm -hmm. that you're subtracting out all of the school level stuff. It's a lot like a cluster mean centering approach in multi-level models. Mm -hmm. And so this is why I come back to centering as an issue that we kind of gloss over at the end of lectures when we teach it. But if once you start to build those connections up, there's all these other methods. Here's the extension in a multi-level model that like you can center stuff and that's trying to get at, here's a pure within estimate. Or if you have them, here's a pure between estimate. You're not conflating things across the levels in that way. Now, pulling in some other work you've done, are there Bayesian approaches to the same issue? Absolutely. And so Bayesian approaches, great with small samples. Priors can be a little... Oh, thank God. The timer went off. That's 45 minutes. All right. We are done. Oh, God. That was interminable. I thought that was never going to end. All right. So do you have the list from the judge? Uh, I mean, I think this is it. I think we've met all of the... Yep. We did the damn teaching thing. Oh, God. We we endured him. We said nice things about his papers. Yes. Check. We asked about Boston. Yeah. Well, phew, that was a train wreck. Okay. We didn't bring up that thing that we were not supposed to bring up. No. I know. It was close, right? It almost came okay. up. I know. It almost <laughs> came up twice. Oh, my God. Yeah. That would have been a whole back to court for that. All right. I think... I think that, and we've just got five years of a thousand yard circle. Yeah. And that's it. And then we're done. So 2026. What about the anklet? Oh, yeah. I know you like it. I kind of, <laughs> I kind of do. All right. I think we can wrap up here. So thanks, man. That is a huge relief. Thank you, everybody. We appreciate your time. All right. Thanks. Take care, everybody. Bye bye. Thanks, everybody. We welcome you to continue to squander your valuable time by listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you entertain yourself while waiting to be retried on a technicality. And please leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes and other cool stuff. Finally, you can deeply worry your friends with amazing Quantitude merch at redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donorschoose.org to support remote access in low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast equivalent to a poorly piloted ship stuck sideways in a canal that brings a complete halt to trade throughout the world. Today's episode was sponsored by The Great Big Book of Boston Trivia, an invaluable resource to anyone claiming to be from the greater New England area. And by Acme House Arrest Monitoring Ankle Bracelets, Enter the coupon code QUANTITUDE at checkout and receive the sensual shock option at 50% off the regular price. 
And finally by the Firefighters Association of America, reminding children around the world that absolutely no one wants to be a quantitative methodologist when they grow up, so be a firefighter instead. This is most definitely not NPR. <laughs>